Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I'm Julia. Kate is not here. She is on the road right now. I was just on the road. Uh, it's messed up our schedules a little bit. So you just got me today, you lucky dogs. Um, no, Kate, we miss you very much. Um, but I just wanted to come on here uh, before we get to the interview with Nick Marks about his book, That's Not Funny, about uh, kind of the, the ascent of right-wing comedy and how that has changed over the years. Um, uh, I just, you know, we would be remiss not to include something about, uh, the leaked decision that is coming down the pike to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, Kate and I will be, uh, releasing an entire episode dedicated specifically to Roe and abortion this weekend. So we just didn't want you to think that this monumental uh, loss of rights happened and we weren't saying anything about it. Uh, Obviously, this is a leftist feminist podcast. Um, Reproductive rights are intimately important to both of us here on the show. Um, So we just... We just wanted to say that, um, but I really think you will enjoy this interview with Nick Marks. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who continues to listen to us and support us. Um, you know, donate to a local uh, repro rights organization at the state level, and uh, God bless. I don't know. What are any of us doing? Okay, here's the interview. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Reply Guys. Um, very excited for today's interview. He is the co-author of uh, the new book, That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. Uh, Nick Marks, welcome to Reply Guys. Thanks so much for having me, Julia. Um, so this is, I mean, we definitely talk about right-wing comedy on the show, um, in terms of, you know, the heavy hitters, the, the Joe Rogans of the world and how right-wing comedy has changed, but I've never thought about it in, um, in such a deep and thorough way as I'm sure you have had to, uh, over the course of writing this book. So my first question is... What's the general trajectory? What's the timeline of uh, how we got here to the dumpster fire of uh, right-wing comedy that we find ourselves in today? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. The, the easiest sort of starting point is the, the Trump presidency. So mm-hmm. uh, we're not the first people to point out that uh, Trump had a lot of the um, stylistic uh, trappings of a stand-up comic, even if a, a really insufferable <laughs> one. A really right? bad one. <laughs> for, for all of his faults, and they are, they are many, he knew how to engage with a crowd of live people. He yeah. improvised. He knew how to turn individual audience members against one another and against 
a journalist who might be recording it. Um, and so he gave a kind of permission structure t- to um, fellow uh, politicians, to followers, to fans, to Republicans writ large, to sort of engage in the same sort of banter and joking structures that, that he did as well. Um, Trump pretty routinely engaged in uh, humor of superiority, right? Laughing down at people who were in culturally marginalized positions. So if you think of the, the many sort of jokes he would make at the expense of somebody um, uh, like Mexican migrants and the mm-hmm. mentally impaired journalist from early in his 2016 campaign, that tenor really provided the, the sort of framework for uh, Fox News personalities to sort of incorporate more comedy into their address. You mentioned Joe Rogan. Other folks that we uh, mention across the book are directly invoking a sort of humor of laughing at the libs, owning them, making them feel smaller. Mm. Yeah, and I think for, you know, it seems like from what, um, you know, the the little blurbs that I've read of your book, it seems like your book is kind of aimed at maybe self-described liberals um people like for us or not us i'm not a i'm not a lib but um, those of us on the left wing to kind of like look inward uh at what has come to roost in our backyard Mm -hmm. um because i think for so long liberals and leftists alike um took comfort in the fact that republicans a lot of conservative comedians just are not funny like conservatism is inherently not funny like we think of like the Babylon Bee that their attempt at like the onion where you <laughs> I think yeah. I think it has since shut down but the, it, the, they you yeah. you had to pay to submit yeah which I just loved I loved yeah. that so much and yeah it, they were always like so unfunny but I think what has happened is that conservative comedy has kind of like come in through the back door um, through more like anti-establishment libertarian style figures or people who consider themselves to be like post-partisan. Like, oh, I'm just a truth teller. I just call balls and strikes. But it's people who have you know, a pretty traditionally conservative reactionary worldview. Um, So do you think that this has been a kind of like, you know, you mentioned Donald Trump and Joe Rogan. (laughs) Has it been kind of like a trickle down from them to, you know, smaller uh, but still very popular um, personalities kind of coming out of the woodwork? A, a little bit. I, I think Trump and Trumpism provided the bigger context uh, in which these comedians sort of entered and became economically successful. So the mainstream liberal comedy has uh, some pretty recognizable and successful institutions, right? The Daily Show, Saturday Night Live, whatever you think of them in their current forms. For the last 20 years, their politics have been pretty center, center liberal uh vaguely vaguely to the left of center. But for 20 years, conservatives haven't had that same institutionalization of their comedy franchises. So you right. see all these weird one-off attempts to make a daily show happen. Fox News had the half-hour news hour in 2007. I don't know if you're 
fortunate enough to remember that uh, awful Daily Show ripoff. I don't. I I'm blessed. <laughs> I'm blessed to not to not remember it. The the thing is that uh, there there are sort of uh, two moving pieces to this. The right has kind of been trying with various amounts of success to to launch a true franchise, and I'll, I'll get to what some of those are in just a second. Meanwhile, uh, liberals have kind of been burying our heads in the sand, thinking that we are the funny ones. Comedy mm-hmm. is comedy because it aligns with my progressive values. Right. Anything that doesn't forward a progressive cultural economic agenda is something else. It's Fox News outrage programming, or it's infotainment, or it's something that my Mima likes, so I'm not going to pay attention to it, which is a totally understandable and justifiable taste-based reaction, right? We call the book That's Not Funny because I, I, I'm a leftist. I don't find this stuff funny. Yeah. However, I recognize that it is comedy. It, it has joke structure. It makes people laugh. It's impossible to say that 40-50% of the country simply doesn't enjoy comedy. That, that doesn't scan with like what human beings are, are made up to do. Uh, so to disavow the entire existence of these things simply by saying, well, conservatives tried the half-hour news hour in 2007. That failed, so eh, there's no such thing as right-wing comedy. Misses the kind of incremental progress they've made over the course of the Trump administration. So that now we've got, um, we argue, uh, a kind of franchise in the making in the form of uh, Gutfeld, uh, the, the late night comedy show on Fox News. So this is uh, in much the same way The Daily Show has a host who goes through the headlines, does a mono- uh, monologue, talks to a panel of guests. They have pre-recorded sketches and comedy bits on the show, um, very much trying to kind of meld the formula of the daily show onto an existing sort of Fox News format. Hmm. Uh, A a few others that we identify, uh, Tim Allen in the book, uh, his long-running sitcom Last Man Standing, just a very boring kind of family sitcom that is all about his sort of status as a, you know, prominent white patriarch of a family with a bunch of annoying lib daughters, right? And they're kind Mm -hmm. of waving pride flags in his face. And there's a a meathead character, like all in the family, a a kind of lib boyfriend who enters the picture and says, oh, Mike, why don't you, you know, recognize my pronouns? And Mike says, ah, how many pronouns do I have to recognize? That that old uh, chestnut, right? LOL. (laughs) Right. Folks always ask me, like, what what's an example of a conservative joke? And it really, I mean, that that's the main one. I they know. Go, they go to that well quite often. Um, they really, <laughs> they really think pronouns are so funny. It's, they think it's it's it comes up over and over and over again. And also, oh, I, this is just reminding me of like, I I think that as a reaction to just the advancement of transgender rights there were a lot of jokes that came out of that from people who you wouldn't necessarily think of as like you know you don't think of them as like a fox news style conservative Mm -hmm. but it's like i mean fucking a lot of ricky gervais's jokes uh about trans people are very in and you know the the classic internet reactionary joke of like I identify as an attack helicopter Um, which I guess you know conservatives can only think in war planes yeah Uh, there there is 
there, there's social science research that we address in the book uh, that saying that people who identify as conservative have trouble with ambiguity. They, they don't like unresolved identity categories and like open-ended problems, which makes them less likely to appreciate satire because satire is kind of fuzzy yeah. and nebulous and you got to put pieces together, right? So it kind of starts at that. Um, like pronouns is, is like the perfect thing to vex a, a conservative uh, uh, political uh, ideologue, but it's the perfect joke to make for them because like I, I see the world as... Uh, men and women and anything that sort of falls into a gray area is ridiculous to me and, and is mm -hmm. an object for me to place myself above and, and laugh at. Yeah, I and I think what's so interesting, too, is you mentioned, uh, you know, you mentioned Tim Allen. We also, you know, Dennis Miller has been a regular on the just like conservative crotchety man circuit. Um but also, you know, someone who is a purported liberal and has mm -hmm. been for many decades, Bill Maher, another guy we love to hate on this show. <laughs> um, you know, Bill Maher does a lot of reactionary humor, jokes, whatever you want to call it. I, I, I don't think, like, I think he's so painfully unfunny. I don't know yeah. who his show is for. He continues to get more and more shows. He greenlit by networks. They just keep giving him more shows. Why? Uh, oh, <laughs> Home-owning home boomers whose HBO yeah. subscription travels with them from vacation home to the, the their kids' condo that they own back to their McMansion or whatever. It, yeah. it is uh, strictly boomer humor. Um, but yeah, the, the type of reactionary joke you get out of a Tim Allen or a Dennis Miller or a Bill Maher might not be the same as like a, a sort of neo-Nazi podcast that, that we address later in the book because they have the cover of being kind of putatively culturally liberal like look man i'm okay with grass like i've got a, a gay niece or whatever just as long as you don't bring it in my face and make me deal with yeah. it that they're, they're wealthy enough and secure enough to kind of pay lip service to cultural liberalism but the the strain of conservative comedy we identify with those those aging boomers is one of like leave me alone in my giant house so that I can go golfing with my other old dad friends. Some of whom may be war criminals. <laughs> we don't know. Yes. Um, yeah. I do just imagine all of those. I do imagine Bill Maher is like a one degree room. I, I just can't imagine that he isn't friends with people in the Bush administration. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, the, you would think hosting uh, the politically incorrect for as long as he did. There was a good deal of, like, glad-handing among some pretty nefarious characters behind the oh, scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's so... Okay, so I think one of the issues that has lulled people on the left to into believing that we don't have to worry about this is that um, f the simple reason that... Very few, if any, people on the right are considered cool. Uh, like, there is a huge cool factor missing from many um, of the right-wing figures. Um, however, 
It's not to say, and, and again, I want to preface this by saying I don't think any of these people are cool, but they have, you know, you don't have exclusively um, old white guys being the vessel for this kind, these kinds of talking points. Like one of the big reasons why Milo Yiannopoulos made such mm-hmm. a splash is because he was like, you know, he was in you know, to to the people who subscribe to his ideology, he was funny. He was outrageous. Um, he just wasn't the kind of person that you would expect to mm-hmm. be delivering those talking points. Mm-hmm. And I think um, we have seen the conservative, you know, obviously Fox News always had their their corral of blonde like young blondes Mm -hmm. as mouthpieces but it's not they weren't distinct personalities um and i think that that is changing a lot um who was that gun girl who was that girl who was like i'm a college student i want to bring my gun on oh right Yeah, yeah. I'm forgetting her name. I'm, all I can think of is Dana Loesch, the, the wannabe actor yeah. who became the NRA spokesman. But Yeah, Dana yeah. Loesch, um, for sure. And Lauren Boebert. Yes. And, I mean, Ben Shapiro. People think, like, people on, it. I mean, he is so painfully unfunny. <laughs> but he, but people think that he, like, He's always doing these kind of like one-upsmanship tweets and people really respond to it. People think he is like, again, I don't know how you can look at Ben Shapiro and think he's cool, but I will say that someone like Joe Rogan has, who's had him on his show has like, and like kind of treated him like an equal Mm -hmm. and same thing like Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of makes him to a certain kind of audience member cool by association. Yeah. Again, I think Joe Rogan is so uncool, but like, are these the same people who think that like Elon Musk is cool? I, I can't, I really can't wrap my head around it. And maybe that's actually why I need to think about it more because I think you do need to know, you need to try to understand what these people find compelling about these figures. Yeah. So definitely the majority of the folks we talk about in the book are, are young men. They're not the sort of aging, irrelevant boomer dad um, asking about like the cool factor and uh, Rogan and Elon Musk. The uh, presence of figures like Ben Shapiro and uh, to a lesser extent, you know, Steven Crowder, the YouTuber who does the change my mind stuff. Oh, yeah. Those are the like nominally the, the youth movement of right wing comedy. So, you know, Ben Shapiro kind of puts a, a youth millennial identity onto some pretty familiar kind of neoconservative tropes, right? Of gender roles and sort of America firstness. Um, he's got connections to like many of these uh, comedians out there in the world. Uh, Steven Crowder, another one who goes onto college campuses and tries to own the lib college kids by making themselves uh, sort of contort themselves into logic pretzels by trying to decide, well, no, if there aren't two genders, then how many genders are there? And I I guess it can't just be an open-ended question. 
Uh, oh, so wow. Of, I love yeah. I love when people try to, when grown adults are like, I'm going to own these teens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's always a, uh, it, it, it's always a, a comedy of superiority. It's like, right. let's laugh at the, the silly liberal college kid who may earnestly believe something that I don't, but that automatically makes them wrong and uh, the, the object of, of laughter. The, the other part of it you identify is uh, the, the sort of Rogan acolyte universe, the, the sort of libertarian tech bro person who was fed up with the, the scene in a coastal place and is now living in Austin or whatever. Um, Rogan's politics are obviously kind of tougher to like nail down as he's just a conservative or, or liberal. You know, he initially supported Sanders in the 2020 campaign and then flipped to Trump. He supports drug legalization and, and uh, uh, gay rights. But the thing we point to in the book are his connections to all these other sort of nefarious characters that mm-hmm. overwhelmingly portray him as someone uh, sympathetic of, supportive of, like right-wing views on uh, economics, on the sort of like power structures in the universe. He very rarely has on actual sort of voices from the left that are going to challenge him or, or, or disagree with him. Right. And I think we do think of Joe Rogan as kind of like hard to pin down, but he's a libertarian. Like, he's a libertarian. He, mm-hmm. you know, exactly like he has like a hands-off approach on like gay rights and drug legal and drug legalization and everything like that, but yeah. everything else is pretty conservative. And, you know, as as we were talking about, he's... He has a lot of these conservative figures on his show very, very often. Mm-hmm. Um, disproportionately, the guests on his show skew right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't really think there's like he would. He would like you to believe there's some ambiguity. Like you can't mm-hmm. pin me down. You can't put yeah. me in a box, but you can. Um, and I was. This just made me think about um, Blair White who is actually a trans YouTuber yeah, and she is a big cultural figure uh, in the conservative sphere. Mm -hmm. Um, And she actually, I think she went on Ben, either Ben Shapiro came on her show or she went on his show or something like that. And, you know, cause his whole thing was like, I'm not going to call Caitlyn Jenner a she Mm -hmm. I'll call Caitlyn Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, but I'm not going to call her she or whatever like whatever he was misgender he just like was defending misgendering caitlin jenner Mm -hmm. which uh, i mean of all the people caitlin jenner is not the one i want to defend but i will um but basically blair white who is like a conservative reactionary kook in her own way like really was able to get to ben shapiro in such a way Mm -hmm. that he like understood even though he immediately went went back to his his old ways. Mm -hmm. But that, I think Blair White is another example, because another example of the way that the conservative pundit is changing is because they're, they are kind of looking more like us on the left with every cycle of new, um, of new conservative celebrity who comes out. Like Blair White is, She's trans, she's extremely attractive, mm-hmm. and she's very, um, you know, she's pretty smart. She has, like, a way with words. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that scares me more, <laughs> I think, that like those figures are becoming younger and more yeah. um, in the realm of someone who could be considered cool. Yeah, the the thing with, um, it's not quite the, the case as much in Shapiro. He's more of a political figure, but Rogan doesn't have politics. He has demographics. And I think he mm. is willing to talk about and go after any figure or topic that he thinks will appeal to his primarily young male listenership. And so he'll he'll do things like, I mean, Jordan Peterson is like the, the classic example of like the perfect Rogan guest and his sort of bullshit sort of self-help. Make uh, your bed. Yeah, the, the make your bed sort of version of this is perfect for the kind of maybe ideologically ambivalent young male listener who hasn't totally made up his mind about what political party he uh, is going to align with. But he knows this Rogan guy is talking sense, man. I got to do my exercises. I got to eat well. And I'm probably going to be more adventurous in uh, sort of drug and and sexual terms because Rogan gives me license to do that. So it's tough to sort of hang any one issue or another on a like a party affiliation with him, but his is a business of cranking along those 10, 11 million Spotify listeners. And especially the young male listener, that's long been a a valuable like demographic to advertisers and people who buy off-brand Viagra and ButcherBox and whatever other (laughs) bullshit he he advertises. If you listen to the ad spots on that show, it is all for 25-year-old dudes. And that's no accident. Yeah, I mean, that leads into another question I had, which, you know, who who are the people who make up this audience? Obviously, we all, like, uh, you know, uh, a best guess is just, like, young, disenfranchised, quote-unquote, white males. Um, but, like, was there anything that surprised you about who... Um, is captivated by these uh, these particular figures? For the most part, it, it's what you just identified. The, the rise of comedy on the right is a recruiting mechanism for young men. It, it's to kind of keep the, the chain of, of recruitment and, uh, oh, I don't know, grooming going to this, uh, <laughs> this nubile set of curious uh, young men about, um, about comedy. Uh, again, it's it's something that folks on the left have to look out for, that we're not the sort of sole proprietors of comedy as a way to attract people to our politics. This is happening on the right. Uh, having said that, I do have some pretty fun uh, stories from... The, we went to CPAC in 2020. My co-author Matt and I did. And this was right before uh, everything. This was late February 2020. And if you've ever been to like a a Republican rally or political convention or anything like that, um, it is a a pretty broad cross section of uh, well wealthy like white people for the most part. And for the, for those who don't know, uh, CPAC is the Conservative Political Action Conference. Conference, yep. So it's like the political organizing event of the year on the right, uh, and so. The, the folks who were there were all pretty familiar, but the folks on stage were, you know, pretty interestingly diverse. There, there were the sort of Betsy DeVoses and uh, Kellyanne Conways and various vampires. Um, <laughs> but the, then, like, Diamond and Silk would come out, uh, the sort of discredited oh, wow. Fox News pundits. 
And so Diamond and Silk, I think we might have talked about them on the show before, but Diamond yeah. and Silk were kind of like um, a. Did they come out of YouTube? I think so. Yeah. So they're kind of they're uh, a, a duo of black women mm-hmm. who were are Trump supporters, and yeah, they really blew up, and a lot of people would kind of point to them as like, oh, well, if it's so bad, how come Diamond and Silk support it? Yeah, Right, the nominal sort of black supporters of of right-wing causes. Greg Gutfeld has a sidekick on his show, uh, Tyrus, who's a former pro wrestler. He's this massive hulking guy who's, uh, I think he's biracial, but he's like the resident sort of black uh, voice on the show who says, no, it's all about, you know, it's not about race, it's about pulling yourself up by your your bootstraps. Um, but Diamond and Silk... The hits, uh, playing the hits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that, that's echoed in Diamond and Silk. They're used very tokenistically by the right to sort of say, oh, don't give me this critical race theory, take personal responsibility instead. But that, that moment at CPAC was when we knew that this brand of comedy was sort of broadly appealing across the right. It wasn't just confined to an appeal to, to young men. But Diamond and Silk came out and did like a comedy roast of the then uh, Democratic presidential hopefuls uh, in February 2020, including, if you remember, that was the late February before Super Tuesday in March was when Bernie was still kind of very prominently uh, in the lead. Uh, They went after him very hard. uh, And the room exploded in laughter with every new punchline. And there were old folks, there were folks there with their kids. Um, it was undeniable in that moment to acknowledge that um, the right was being funny from the right and for the right, and that this was like a, a galvanizing mechanism for them. I think I didn't quite believe that uh, until I was actually in the room with some of these folks because we'd been watching it mostly yeah. on our own. But being in a room of five, ten thousand 10,000 people all laughing together from a political perspective entirely opposite to my own was a pretty wild and and powerful thing. Yeah, that must have been so jarring. (laughs) There is a way way in which, I mean, we've all been in, like any comedian has been in, especially if you're in like a city that has a lot of different kinds of rooms, you've all been in a room where the laughter is like kind of menacing and it's like, like, there have definitely been shows that I've been on where I'm like, I don't give a shit if I do well in front of this crowd. I don't yeah. like what makes them laugh. Yeah. Um, and I think what makes you laugh says a lot about you. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's really, I think there has been a big shift. Like, you know, the CPAC of yesteryear would have just been your, like, Bill O'Reilly's and right. Laura Ingram's. Um, and I wonder what that, I, I honestly wonder what that's going to do for the future of Fox news or if mm-hmm. some, or if something will spring up in its place, because obviously most of Fox news viewers are older as most yeah. television viewers are. Um, yeah. I watch, I watch 60 minutes every week. I, <laughs> I know that I know from the, the ads that run oh, in yeah. 60 minutes that it's all life I'm, insurance. I'm, I'm the, and like, um, like these really obscure medications for like bone diseases. Um, yeah, I know that I am the youngest person who watches 60 Minutes regularly by a good 40 years. 
Right. And, um, yeah, but I, I wonder if something will spring up in its place. I know that there have there are a lot of conservative YouTubers um, of this ilk, and mm-hmm. I guess you could say that, that something already has sprung up in the play, like cons- these kinds of, like, quote-unquote post-partisan, but mm-hmm. definitely culturally conservative, reactionary podcasts and YouTube channels um, are extremely popular. Like, Joe Rogan is number one, and no one is a close second. Yeah. Um, like, no one of any political stripe is a close second. And it makes me think how... Like, it's starting to feel like I'm sure how conservatives felt maybe like 15 years ago. Like, oh, we don't have anybody. We don't have anybody to match what the other side is putting out. Because, yes, we have... I mean, we have like John Oliver. We have uh, mm-hmm. we have like a few a few people who I think would only appeal to a certain kind of person, anyways. But mm-hmm. um, you know, before we we started the show, we were talking about Trevor Noah's Daily Show, and I have found Trevor Noah's Daily Show. I, I admittedly don't watch it. I, I watch some of the, the segments occasionally, but I have found a lot of his commentary to be kind of toothless. Yes. Um, Agreed. And you can't have that. Um, yeah. Not in the, not when someone like Joe Rogan speaks with absolute certainty mm-hmm. about shit he doesn't know anything about. He's telling all of his listeners to eat a shit ton of meat and drink like and you know peddling ivermectin and all this stuff like we need someone you know as you said the the people who listen to his show are a lot of times young men who are like as of yet kind of ideologically on the fence Mm -hmm. we need to win them back yeah um because Joe Rogan is like a gateway drug for young men to become hugely like right-wing conservative reactionary. Yeah. yeah, I think the the problem you identified is one I mentioned earlier that the the liberal comedy institutions have simply gotten too kind of crusty and risk averse. Uh, so I like my entire political sensibility was formed by that. Iraq War, Daily Show, Colbert run of of Comedy Central shows. And uh, over the last 20 years, those have become hugely successful. And and look at the list of Daily Show alum out there working in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the bigger that show's cultural footprint has gotten, Saturday Night Live, another one, the profit mechanism behind a lot of media means that they, they can't take the same chances they did when they were they were starting out, right? They just want to hear Trevor Noah do the Mitch McConnell turtle voice and, and get the sort of uh, laugh. Uh, it's called clapter, right? Maybe you've heard that term. Oh, it's not like we a, sure have. Oh, it's not, it's not a, a joke construction. It's just like, ha-ha, he referenced a politician that I don't like. So I think a lot of those um, more sort of established comedy institutions – um, have nudged out any um, possibility for adventurousness, for, for risk-taking, at least in a sort of um, 
institutionalized way. Now, there, there are plenty of funny and, and uh, adventurous sort of smaller scale uh, comedy, you know, podcasts and, and YouTubers and things like that. But it's going to take a while and honestly, some direct confrontation with that same impulse on the right, I think for us on the left to gain back some of the, um, you know, the cultural territory that we've ceded to them over the last five, 10 years. Yeah, I mean, we so we've had Natalie Wynn on the show, uh, who has a massively successful YouTube channel, ContraPoints, mm-hmm. um, yep. and she is like, this is her, you know, this is what kind of, this is her territory. This is uh, kind of how she made a name for herself. Was like she was the person who was like de-radicalizing people who had been like usually young, disenfranchised men who mm-hmm. had gone down the rabbit hole of being extremely far right and she Mm -hmm. kind of like pulled them back again using humor and she's also ridiculously smart um but i think we need like and her you know her youtube channel has well over a million subscribers Mm -hmm. i think she is the biggest possible net positive for uh for the world and for the left um we need like a hundred of her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. to like drown out the noise of um, created by all of these Joe Rogan acolytes singing the same horrible song in unison. Yeah, yeah. I the the more uh, contrapoints and, and things we get, uh, the the better, obviously. And I am, am hoping that. Um, Oh, I, you look at something, if you scale all the way up to one of the institutions like SNL, I'm, I'm taking as a sign that the hiring of someone like Sarah Sherman and, and James Austin Johnson on that show, who I, I think are like both really incredibly talented and obviously came from the sort of like new media world, is uh, a sign that at least the established comedy institutions get it. They, they have to get sort of like younger and, and edgier and, in order to and, kind of... And Bo and Yang. And Bo and Yang, sure. It, like, there are tons of great sort of, like, young rising talents on that show that I don't think are getting fully I don't, utilized I don't know James, properly. Yeah, yeah, I don't know James Austin Johnson's politics, but I do know that All Sarah right. and Bowen are both, like, open socialists. Yes. Uh, pr- precisely. I guess I don't know James Austin Johnson's either, but I... I assume yeah, I'm gonna, he's I'm gonna on trust, our side. I'm going <laughs> to trust from the from the incredibleness of his Trump impersonation that oh. he's he's got it right. Um, but yeah, I the the thing that we um, kind of notice in the book is the widely divergent range of right wing comedy out there. So there's the the old boomer humor. There's the sort of edge lord trolls, you know, adjacent to to neo Nazis. They tend to be very good at overcoming their their differences and mobilizing to own the libs. They they have no sort of like positive agenda other than to hold uh, win and hold power. Mm-hmm. I think we on the left tend to be a little less good at sort of overcoming our like intramural differences. Our you know the the infighting that we have among political candidates or different strains of leftism mostly because our coalition is bigger, it's more diverse, it's more inclusive of different types of voices. But for some reason, we're not able to sort of discard differences and defeat our, our enemies in the same way that the, that the right is. And that's a, a strain that we particularly notice as prominent in, in comedy. Yeah, I, 
That's so true. And I, I think that like infighting on the left is something that is, uh, it's glazed over too much. Uh, yeah. Even though it's like, it's omni for anybody who's spent any time like online or even in just like real life, uh, you know, leftist uh, or liberal leftist, whatever, um, knows that the infighting is a huge chunk of what gets like airtime and headspace uh for for a lot of people um and it's obviously to our detriment um Mm -hmm. and i think what the what conservatives and what people in the like right-wing comedy sphere have done is really what like traditional Republicans have done again, because they are more, they're more ideologically unified than the left is uh, to begin with, but they primarily prioritize seeing the left as the enemy instead of anyone who might disagree with them within their own Mm -hmm. uh, rank and file. And I think that that's, I mean, yeah, the, that's why we can't win anything. Right. We, like all of our pretty much most of the things that liberals, Democrats, leftists, whatever you want to call it, most of the things that we support have majority support in the country and we can't win a fucking thing because we can't stop fighting. And also because establishment Democrats won't, won't play dirty. They won't, Mm -hmm. um, or they just won't, they won't really, really go to, go to bat they won't break the rules in the same way that uh republicans have been doing for decades right the the concept of uh, of power is one kind of firmly uh understood and, and shared on the right where i where i think again because the coalition of of the left is so much bigger and more diverse that um power manifests in different ways and we disagree about how uh, and who should hold it and who should take it. I mean, you take the example of the, the RBG retirement, non-retirement as a kind of mm. perfect example of that, right? Like, don't don't tell the woman when she can retire. But uh, the meanwhile, we're shooting ourselves in the foot for the next uh, half a century because we lost the Supreme Court seat that's going to sway the most consequential decision of, of, uh, of the decade, likely. Mm-hmm. Yep. I feel great. Um, Sorry to bring it down. No, we all we do is bring it down on this podcast. Um, no, I'm just once again remembering that the horrors of uh, of uh, what happened this week. Yeah. So much has happened this week, um, but yeah, what? Uh, I, yeah, it's so great. Kate and I are doing a. A, uh, an episode specifically dedicated to uh, to the the incoming decision about about Roe overturning Roe and uh, I have a lot to say um, but yeah I I am apprehensive uh, at best to continue to see the development of not just like right-wing comedy but their entire like the media strategy the octopus of right-wing media that 
some people wouldn't even think of as again right-wing media they would just think of it as like post-partisan or whatever but um joe rogan is an arm of right-wing media um (laughs) it's just no way around it Mm -hmm. um is there any is there anything that you came across that gave you any hope of us uh you know reclaiming some of this territory or um should i go cry after this interview (laughs) to to be clear i think the the sort of center left bias of of comedy in the country is is still remains like it's not going anywhere anytime soon and uh i don't have a prescription like ours is not like a, a political project that says here's the problem now here's the path of of what to do out of it um you know, go vote more. No, I, that's not our... <laughs> don't that, don't boo, our, vote. <laughs> right. Right. Pokemon, go to the polls. Pokemon, uh, go to the polls. Don't boo, <laughs> vote. We have no rights left. Everything's great. It's the most important election of our lifetimes. Yeah, um, again. I, I think so many folks, um, and this applies left, uh, less to folks who are avowed leftists and more to just sort of the main sort of broad middle liberal part of the country uh, still haven't uh, even acknowledged that this is a thing, that comedy on the right is a thing, that it's part of what they're doing to build their political appeal and recruit new folks into the the coalition. So our project is just to get that point across to people first and then worry about the, the fallout afterwards. Uh, it, in in the meantime, I'm gonna continue, you know, building up and and listening to the the, the shows and, and and podcasts that I like, but uh, just sort of getting a better understanding of our enemy first, I think, is a, a crucial project that we we haven't accomplished yet. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, I wish I were dead and. <laughs> 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 no, this has been a really interesting and uh, instructive conversation. And, you know, maybe if there is a, a big development in the right wing comedy uh, universe, we'll have you back and we can. Sure. When. When Stephen Crowder decides to run for for state senate or whatever, ha- have me back and I'll I'll, I'll tell you all about aye his aye uh, aye. sweaty, strained rants. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, thank you so much for for doing the show. Um, where can people find you? So I'm on uh, Twitter at Mark's Nick. Uh, the uh, book is out now from uh, University of California Press. That's not funny. How the right makes comedy work for them. We're uh, probably going to do a couple of visits to bookstores in D.C. and New York in June. So we'll post about those online and and share those with uh, you and Kate when we land on them. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, This has been it's been really great talking to you. And uh, here's to a better rest of the year. It sounds so stupid to say that now. I don't care. We I here's to any good news at all. Agreed. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. 
Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is mine